We're going to be in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I just want to begin by reading the passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to come and to hear your word, to spend time thinking on and dwelling on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just ask that you would let your word go forth, that Christ would be exalted, that we would leave here thinking on, dwelling on him, and have a clearer view of our Savior. And I ask this in his name. Amen. I have a question for you. Who is Jesus Christ? This is the most important question ever asked. It's actually the most important question you will answer because the answer to this question will determine your eternal destiny. Get this wrong and you will suffer the consequences of it for all of eternity. Some have attempted to answer this question throughout history and they've given wrong answers. For example, one man named Mohammed a man who, according to his own writings, was demon-possessed. In the 7th century, he said that Jesus was merely a prophet. Oh, sure, Jesus is a good man, but that's all he is. He's a good man and nothing more. He claimed that Jesus did not die on a cross. Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. No, according to Muhammad, Jesus was taken into heaven like Elijah. Mohammed answered the question the wrong way. In 1872, another man named Charles Taze Russell founded what is now known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Among other things, Mr. Russell denied the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, eternal conscious punishment, and hell. He also rejected the idea that Jesus is God. He claimed that Jesus is a created being, Namely, that Jesus is the archangel Michael. I still can't find a verse to support that. And as you think about these two men and their conclusions on Jesus Christ, you have to ask, are these even adequate authorities? Do they even have the authority to answer the question? Muhammad, by his own admission, was demon-possessed. Charles says Russell obviously did not understand Scripture. Is there anyone who can give us an accurate answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Well, in all of history, I can think of one man who stands out as being an authority on the person of Christ. In all of history, there is one man who stands preeminently above all others, who is qualified to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And that one man is the Apostle John the author of our text this morning. And I just want to give you some of his credentials for being able to accurately answer this question. 
Consider his life. He was called as a disciple of Christ at a young age. He was probably in his teens. John was there in John chapter 2 when Jesus transformed water into wine. He was there in John chapter 4 when Jesus spoke to a woman at a well. He was there in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed fifteen to 20,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch. John was there with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus unveiled his glory for a few fleeting moments, Peter wrote of that experience later. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John in John chapter 1, verse 14, describes that experience. He said, We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter and John both said, we're not talking to you about what we heard from somebody else. We're talking about what we saw with our own eyes. In John 1, he says, what I proclaim to you is that which I have seen, that what I have heard, and that what I have touched with my own hands. John was there at the Last Supper. He was there to watch Judas flee into the night to go betray Christ. He sat there in awe as the King of Glory washed his feet. John was there when the Lord instituted the Lord's table, broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. By his own admission, John rested his head upon Jesus. John was there a few hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord fell on his knees and prayed to his father, Lord, if Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me under the full weight of what is about to happen. John was there when the temple police and the guards came to arrest Jesus. He was there when the high priest gathered false witness after false witness, but yet still could not condemn Christ. John was there when Pontius Pilate washed his hands of the innocent blood of Christ and then sentenced him to death. And John was at the foot of the cross when Jesus breathed his last and yielded up his spirit to the Father. John was there three days later at an empty tomb He was there that night when the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to all the disciples but Thomas. And he was there a week later and heard Thomas say, My Lord and my God. And not once, not a single time in his gospel, in his letters, or in the book of Revelation, does John ever identify himself as John. His identity for himself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you think of a person more qualified in the world to answer the question of who is Jesus Christ? And in the opening 18 verses of his gospel account, John focuses directly on Jesus. And he's going to give us three answers to our question, who is Jesus Christ? The first answer, Jesus is the eternal God. The second answer, Jesus is the eternal creator. And the third one, Jesus is the eternal light of men. Let's start with the first one. And as we come to the text, I I want to begin by first recognizing that in this passage, John never refers directly to Jesus. The name Jesus doesn't appear here. Instead, John uses a term that you have translated as the word. In Greek, this is the term logos. 
And if we want to understand the passage, we need to first understand what is the word? What is the logos? For the Greeks, the philosophical Greeks, this term logos had a lot of meaning to it. And the meaning they attached to it was the logos was an impersonal source of all things. It's this force that's behind everything, from which everything is derived. This word also had meaning for the Jews. When the Jews heard the Logos, they viewed it as the word of the Lord. For the Jews, it was the source and divine force behind creation. The word of the Lord was the giver of life. The word of the Lord was the revealer of God himself. And John takes this word and he doesn't apply it to an impersonal force. He doesn't apply it to some mysterious element or power out there. He applies it to a person. So who is this person that John is referring to? Well, the easiest way we can answer this question is just by looking at the immediate context. Go down to verse 14, and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Every child in Sunday school class knows the answer to this question. It's Jesus. But how else can we determine that this is talking about Jesus? John also points out the testimony of John the Baptist. If you look at verse 5, it says that the Word was the light of men. So in verse 1, you have the Word. Verse 5, the Word is the light. Verse 7, John came to testify about the light. John is going to testify about the light, and the light is the Word. So who is John testifying about? Who is he talking about? Go down to verse 15. John, that would be John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John indeed was there to testify about a person. But verse 15 still doesn't tell us who the person is. For that we have to go to verse 29. Same chapter, John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The one that John the Baptist came to proclaim is the light. The light is the word, and the one that John came to proclaim is who? Jesus Christ. But that brings us to a question. Notice at the end of that verse, verse 30, he says, For he existed before me. How is John able to say Jesus existed before him? Just from a human perspective. Luke makes it clear that John the Baptist was conceived and was born first. So what does John the Baptist know? How, does he, how is he able to say he existed before me? Go back up to verse 1. The word here refers to Jesus. The Apostle John says, In the beginning was the word. To put it another way, in the beginning was Jesus. Now, some really astute theology students in the room will say, Frank, that's not technically accurate. Jesus is the name of the incarnate person of the Trinity, not the eternal. And yes, you are correct. But for the purpose of simplicity and to make this an easier discussion, I'm just going to refer to the second person of the Trinity as Jesus. 
So he says, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning. The term he uses here is in archae. It can refer to a ruler, one who is uh, first in authority. But it also refers to beginnings. In Greek philosophy, this could point to a beginning in time. It could point to like the beginning of our church service. You would say, in the beginning of the service. It could refer to the beginning of a career. It refers to temporal beginnings within time. John uses it this way in 1 John 2.24, referring to hearing the gospel. He says, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. From the beginning when we began preaching the gospel to you. But this term doesn't refer only to temporal beginnings, beginnings in time. It also refers to the starting point, the ultimate starting point, the ultimate cause, the first cause of all that is. In that context, in the New Testament, it's used to refer to creation. Hebrews 1.10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Same Greek phrase. Jesus, in Matthew 19.4, he uses the same phrase. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Same term. Jesus was clearly using the term to refer back to creation. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and they got to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the translators of the Old Testament translated Genesis 1.1 with this very term, in the beginning. When any Jew would have read John 1, in the beginning was the word, their mind immediately would have gone to Genesis 1 and the creation narrative. And by starting here, by starting with creation, John gives us the time frame. And we have to keep this in mind as we go through this verse. The time frame is important. We're starting at creation. John doesn't start his gospel by giving us the human lineage of Jesus. When Matthew started his gospel, he started with a genealogy, and he traced Jesus' ancestors all the way back to Abraham. Luke did the same thing in Luke 3, but he traced the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam. John, however, just skips the genealogy altogether, and he immediately goes back to creation. He goes back to in the beginning. John says, in the beginning was, and I'm sorry, I know we're taking this word by word. This will speed up in a minute. But this verb is extremely important. This verb, the tense of the verb, shows its completed action in the past with ongoing results. Now, what's the time setting? Creation. The verb is talking about action that happened before creation. Before God created. What does the verb mean? It's, it's a, a to be verb. It describes existence. To be means to exist. The existence described here occurred before the beginning. The existence described here occurred before creation. This is an amazing choice of words that John used. He could have chosen a different verb. 
he used a verb in verse 3 that also is a to be verb. It's the word genomai. But had John chosen to use that one, John 1, 1 would say, in the beginning, the word was becoming. But that's not what John says here. If he would have used that, it would have been saying the word was created. Jesus was created. Instead, John uses a verb that clearly demonstrates that the word or that Jesus existed before creation. He existed before the beginning. And if he existed before creation, he is not part of creation. Jesus is eternal. He is uncreated. He is before all of creation. This is an attribute of divinity. Human beings cannot be eternal. Creatures cannot be eternal. You and I have a start date. We don't have an end date because we will be around forever now. But you and I have a start date. Jesus does not. He has always existed. John continues, verse 1, And the word was with God. Again, remember the time setting. He uses the same verb, and this is referring to his existence before creation, in eternity past. Before creation, he was with God. He existed with God as the second person of the Trinity. The word God here is a reference to the Father. And the Greek phrase he uses describes the most intimate, personal relationship possible. You might say it's a face-to-face relationship. It's only possible with two people. One person can't have this kind of relationship. Jesus existed from all eternity past in a perfect, personal, face-to-face relationship with the Father. If he is in a relationship with God the Father, he can't be God the Father. This has to describe two different persons. And both persons are given divine attributes. Both persons are described as God. The word is given the divine attribute of eternality. He has always been and always will be. And the second person here is described as God. Both of them are persons and they are both God. And they have spent all of eternity in a perfect face-to-face relationship. John then says, and the word was God. Yes, the Father is God. Yes, the word, Jesus, is God. He existed in an eternity past in a face-to-face relationship with the Father. And during that time, he was always God. This doesn't make two separate gods. The Greek here is very clear. This is not two separate gods. This is one God in two persons, existing in two persons. And you might say, well, hang on a second. We worship a trinity. There are three persons. That is true. John is not excluding the Holy Spirit. He's just emphasizing the Father and the Son here. But he is not excluding the Holy Spirit. The verb he uses here, and the word was God, is the exact same verb he used in the opening phrase it still describes action that occurred before creation. 
Jesus was always God. He did not become God, and he never ceased to be God. He has always been God, even from before creation. In verse 2, he summarizes and restates verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. He has always been in a relationship with his Father. From the beginning, from before creation, he has always had that perfect communion with the Father. So who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the eternal God. And this is a major point of contention with certain cults today, namely the Mormons. They look at the final phrase of verse 1 and insist that John really wrote, the word was a God. In Mormon theology, Jesus is a created being. He was created by the Father in eternity past, in what they call the pre-existence. According to Mormon theology, every human being was created in eternity past as a spirit, and you existed as a spirit. Of the creation, Jesus, according to the Mormons, was the very first created being. His younger brother, the second created being, is Lucifer. And so the Mormons will tell you Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. Jesus, according to the Mormons, was elevated to deity. He was made into a God through his obedience and submission to the Father. So when they read John 1, they read and insert their theology into the final phrase and say Jesus was a God. That is, he's a God existing alongside the Father. There's some problems here. First, the Greek grammar is pretty clear. The word is described as God, and there's no other way in the Greek language to attribute deity to the word other than what John has done. Leon Moore said, how else in Greek would one say the word was God other than what he said? This is the clearest expression of Jesus' deity in the New Testament. The second problem is the opening two phrases destroy the idea that Jesus was created by the Father. Because John clearly says Jesus existed before creation. So if he existed before creation, how is he created? And third, if Jesus is a God and the Father is God, then Mormon theology says there are multiple gods. They are polytheists. This contradicts Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He continues that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Saying Jesus is a God along with the Father contradicts Jesus' own statements. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. We are one in essence. We are one in nature. In John 14, 9, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Or consider what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. To preach a Jesus who is not equal with the Father, to preach a Jesus who is not an eternal God, is to preach a false Jesus. To believe in that Jesus is to believe in a false Jesus. 
A Jesus who is not God, who is not one with God, cannot mediate for you with God. He cannot reconcile you to an infinite being because he is a mere finite being. He is a creation. So the first answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the eternal God. Second answer, as the eternal God, Jesus is the eternal creator. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. And I want to stop just by pointing out and addressing an odd preposition. Notice he says, came into being through him. Why did he say things came into being through Jesus rather than saying they came into being by him? It's an important distinction because the Bible says that the Father created all things. But we need to understand that the Father's creation was done through his Son. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him. All things came from the Father. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. The Father's creation, the Father's creative acts were done through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, those things the Son also does in like manner. The Father and Son are both involved in the work of creation. The Father created through the Word. Mormonism would insist that Jesus is also the Creator. He is created, but He is also the Creator. And here's how they do it. They say that the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. But they fail to recognize one simple fact. Look at verse 3 again. John says, All things were created through him. Not some things, not most things, all things were created through him, through Christ. If all things were created through him, that means the creator could not be a part of his own creation. He has to be separate. John continues and says, And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You could translate this phrase a different way. And apart from him, nothing came into being, not one thing. John hammers the final nail in the coffin of those that would claim Jesus was created. Nothing has been created that was not created by him. Not a single thing. John 1, verse 10, he says, And the world was made through him. The writer to the Hebrews says, quotes the Father, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Later in that same chapter, the Father says of the Son, And, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Jesus is the eternal 
creator. He created everything. Paul in Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So why is this so important? Why does it matter that Jesus is the creator? It matters because you were created by God through Christ, and you were created through him and for him. If Jesus is the creator, and you are his creation, and both of those are true, then he has absolute authority over you and me. He has the same authority that a potter has over a clay pot. He has absolute authority. He can do with it as he pleases. This idea that's going around that Jesus can be your Savior and not be your Lord is nothing short of foolish. For anyone to claim that they do not have to be obedient to Christ is to deny the fact that Christ is their Creator. Think about how God speaks to unbelievers. He says unbelievers who refuse to honor him as God, they are without excuse. He says you have no excuse. You know I'm God, you know I'm the creator, and I will hold you guilty. He says that to unbelievers. How much more will Christ hold guilty those who know about him but refuse to obey him? Those who say, well, I can be saved by Jesus, I just don't have to listen to what he says. Peter said judgment begins in the household of God. Jesus Christ is God. He is your creation, your creator, excuse me. As his creation, you owe him total and absolute obedience and allegiance. And to refuse that, to say, no, I'm not going to obey. No, I'm not going to do what Jesus says. Is to say that the creator only has authority over you when his creation gives him permission. It is to elevate ourselves to the place of God and subject, subject him to our desires. To make ourselves God. And the question this morning is not, do you believe in Jesus? That's an important question. The question is, will you submit to your creator? Because he's not only the creator. He's the judge. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority is his. John 5, 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. As your creator, he has absolute authority, and he will judge every single one, every single person in his creation. And someone might say here, well, it doesn't really matter because I don't believe that. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't think he'll do that. Well, what you believe is irrelevant. Fire burns whether you believe it or not. Poison kills whether you believe it or not. Jesus Christ is the creator and he will judge all people one day. He will ensure that every knee bows. And it will either be in this lifetime or in the next. So who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal creator. And third, Jesus is the eternal light of men. Look at verse 4. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John says of Jesus, in him was life. In Jesus is all spiritual life. He possesses life in himself. This is the doctrine of the aseity of God. That is that Jesus Christ is self-existent. And once again, he attributes to Jesus a divine attribute. Humans do not, do not have a seity. We are not self-existent. John 5, 26, for just, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Christ possesses life. It was not given to him. It's not dependent on anything else. He possesses it naturally. And this is the great difference between God and his creation. The universe at one time did not exist. It was created. And as a creation, it's always changing. It's always becoming. You and I, at one time, did not exist. We were created. Our life is dependent upon things outside of us. Our life is dependent upon our environment. We need food, we need water, we need air. We're always changing, we're always becoming something. I'm not what I used to be, but one day I'll be something that I'm not. God, however, has always existed. He has life in himself that is not dependent upon anything. There was never a time when he did not exist. That's why he told Moses, I am who I am. Our life is dependent ultimately on him, and he supplies our life. You can't take your next breath without him. Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and exist. Our living, our moving, our existing, all are bound up in him. Jesus is self-existent. He supplies physical life, and he also supplies spiritual life. And that's John's focus here in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. He says, and the life was the light of men. This is spiritual life. Spiritual life is given by a sovereign decree of God. It's his sovereign choice and decision whom he gives spiritual life to. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Spiritual life is given by a sovereign decree of God and it's given to those who believe, John 3, 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This was the purpose of Jesus' coming. He came to give eternal spiritual life to dead sinners. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. That's verse 5. Christ imparts spiritual life, eternal life, to dead sinners. John says that the life was the light of men. Light here refers to truth and holiness. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light here is contrasted with darkness. That would be sin, falsehood. 
Light and spiritual life are inseparable. If you have spiritual life, you will have the light, truth, and holiness. Notice how he phrases it. The life was the light. It's the same construction we saw in verse 1. The word was God. One is the other. The light is the life. When you receive the eternal life of Christ, you also receive light. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ has overcome all sin. And when the light shines, the darkness must flee. And you can't have the light in your life. You can't have true spiritual life and still be in darkness. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Remember, light is truth and holiness. Darkness is sin. Earth is Satan's domain. It's a domain of darkness. Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness of the lost world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And that light, John 1.5 says, shines in darkness. Notice it's present tense. It's happening right now. It's currently shining. Truth and holiness are being wrought in a dark world. Light opposes darkness. It vanquishes darkness. The two can't exist simultaneously. You can't be a Christian and have the light of life and still be loving and enjoying sin and living in darkness. Wherever the light is, the darkness will leave. The darkness did try to oppose the light. Notice the end of verse 5. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That's a rather unfortunate translation. It's better understood as the darkness did not overcome it. Another way of saying the darkness did not defeat it. It tried to. It certainly tried to defeat it. Satan tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. In the wilderness, he tried to tempt Jesus to sin. If, if Jesus would have sinned in the wilderness, his death would have been for his own sin. He tried to stop it again through Peter. Remember, Peter said, oh no, Lord, we'll never let you die. And Jesus responds to him, get behind me, Satan. Satan failed. And even when he thought he won for a little bit, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't realize that he just lost. Remember, it was Satan who entered into Judas when he went to betray him. Even when he thought he was winning, he was actually bringing about his own demise. Jesus' death ultimately was the final victory over sin. And the translation, the darkness did not comprehend it, gives the impression that the reason sinners struggle is because they fail to comprehend. If they just could understand a little bit more. The problem with darkness, the problem with sinners, is not their ability to understand. Demons comprehended the truth of Jesus long before anybody else did. Long before Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the demons were shouting out, who Jesus is. Matthew 8, 29, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to, to, uh, excuse me, to torment us before the time? 
He didn't even want to explain to him who Jesus was. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Mark 1, 24, the demon said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is not a problem with comprehension. It's not that they don't have enough information. They know exactly who they're dealing with. They comprehended the reality. They understood Jesus is the judge. And one day he will judge them. James 2.19 says, The demons believe and tremble. In Romans 1, Paul said of the unbeliever that they know God exists. He says they are without excuse because he has made it abundantly clear. Problem here is not comprehension. If you reject Christ, it's not because you don't understand. You reject him because you love sin and you hate the light. You hate holiness and righteousness. John 3, verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John's not saying that the darkness didn't comprehend it. He's saying that the darkness could not overcome it. Christ's victory on the cross was absolute. His victory over sin was absolute. Romans 6 says, if you are in Christ, you have been freed from sin. Is that true for you? Are you living in the light? Are you walking in holiness and in truth? Or are you still living in darkness? As though the light didn't win. Has the light of Christ truly shined into your life? And the evidence of true and saving faith here is not the absence of sin. The evidence of true and saving faith is not moral perfection. The evidence of true and saving faith is the recognition of more and more sin as you go. It's a growing hatred of sin. When I was in the military, I was on a ship, and they'd come around and do inspections a lot. And I had just become a new work center supervisor, and I had my first inspection. And I wanted my space to look really good. And the captain came in there, and I thought, man, my space is nice and clean. And he's walking around, he says, this looks good. And then he pulls out this massive mag light, big flashlight, and he turns that thing on. And he shines it into a corner underneath the workbench. And that little corner that used to look nice and clean now looked filthy. The more light you have, the more dirt you will see. The more of Christ you have, the more sin you'll see in your own heart. Someone who says, well, I don't see any sin in my life. I don't have any sin and I'm not worried about it. That's the person we should worry about. If you see no sin or if the sin that you have doesn't bother you, there's not a hatred somewhere in your heart. You have no desire to run from it. You're in darkness. You don't have Christ. Your salvation is a fiction. True saving faith results in a life growing in holiness.
And if that describes you, I would just encourage you to repent. Apostle John says Jesus is the eternal God, the eternal creator, and the eternal life of men. Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? Or are you searching for another? He said that all who come to him, he will not cast out. If you don't know him, if you have not trusted in him, you can do that today, and you should. Confess directly to him, confess your sins, and then trust him to give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we... We love your truth. We love your word. We want to love Christ more. We want to honor him as God, as creator, as Lord. We want to recognize that our lives are totally dependent upon him. And then respond to that with obedience and love trusting that Christ can give us eternal life. We ask that uh, you would help us keep that in our mind throughout this coming week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.